My hope is in the Lord, who gave himself for me. Good morning, this is Lane Jones, pastor of Calkins Baptist Church, speaking for the Beacon of Hope broadcast. And have you ever felt like Christian people are kind of beating you over the head trying to get you to convert to Christianity? Maybe you have somebody you work with, somebody you went to school with, maybe it was a girlfriend or boyfriend, and it seems like that was the main thing that they were emphasizing. Why was that so? Well, if you've had that happen to you, you understand probably quite a bit of the gospel that they were trying to share. The idea that Christ is the only way to heaven, that you have to accept him in order to be saved, and if you're not saved, that you would spend eternity in hell. And so that probably is the, is the substance of what you were being told. And let me ask you this question. How many times have you really asked yourself, is that true? Because if those things are true, if there is a heaven, there is a hell, if Jesus Christ really is the only way to get to heaven, why wouldn't you share that with people that you care about? Really, it's a compliment to you, the fact that they care enough about you to try to share that with you. I think sometimes those that don't know Christians think that we're trying to get a notch in our belt. And I'm not saying that there aren't people that are like that. The genuine Christians are not in that boat. They really are concerned about your soul. And so we're talking this morning from the book of Romans, chapter 15, starting with verse 14, on this issue of reaching the world for Christ. Now, why would you want to do that? What what does it matter? Why not just leave people alone? Why not just let the people in Africa or India or Pakistan or wherever you could name across the globe that's not Christian, why not just let those people alone? Well, let's talk about that. What's the big deal about world evangelism, and, and how does that even take place? What's God's method for having that happen? And so before we get started, let's ask God's blessing upon his word. Father, we thank you for your goodness. Father, there are probably some people that I'll be talking to today that have felt like I've described. They felt like they had a friend or a loved one, and in their mind, they were being badgered. And I'm sure that was not the intent of the Christian. They were concerned about their soul. And the question is, is that correct? Is that true? Are people on their way to heaven or hell, is there an eternity, and is Jesus Christ the only way? And Lord, we know that those answers are absolutely yes. And so we pray that you'll give wisdom as we study your word together. I pray for that person who even may be still in that spot where they're so frustrated with possibly a spouse or a brother or sister, that they would even listen and give a, a chance to think about this a little bit more about the message of the gospel and why it's so important that it goes across the world. And may you bless them for listening, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, the Apostle Paul is talking here to the Roman church. He's coming toward the end of his letter, and he's trying to share with the people about how the gospel needs to go across the world and his role in it. And I will just tell you this from the start, that Many a Christian doesn't know how his life fits into God's purpose in reaching the world for Christ, and that's kind of tragic. Not that we have to get the big plan any more than if you were in World War II or even one of the more modern conflicts. You have to understand the grand strategy. You really don't. What you got to know is what's my mission and what do I got to do to perform it? That's really what you have to know. And I'll just tell you this, that God calls each of his true children to be involved in reaching others for Christ. And so if you've run into the person that's honestly trying to reach out to you and share the gospel with you, I hope you're not offended at that. I know that the gospel itself is offensive, 
because who likes to be told that if I don't do a certain thing that I'm going to burn in hell forever? I mean, who likes to be told that? But that's not really the ultimate question of whether you like to be told that or not. The question is, is it true? And if God cared enough about us to send his son to die a horrific death in order that we might be saved, then I think we need to think about another question, and that is, well, is Jesus of Nazareth really the Son of God? And if you're going to answer that question, one of the best questions to ask yourself is this, and that is, did he literally walk out of the grave three days after his execution? If you're really looking at standards of evidence, it's really hard to deny bodily resurrection did take place with Jesus of Nazareth because you will find a number of things that give credibility to that. And if Jesus Christ really did walk out of the tomb, what that means is that the gospel's true. And you do need to prepare for eternity because you're going to spend so, it, it somewhere, either in heaven or in hell. And to be honest with you, you're going to have to make that choice. And that's why people are, are so interested in trying to share the gospel with you. So what Paul's talking about here is, all right, now we want to get the gospel across the world, but how does that happen? And so there's a few thoughts I'd like to share with you. First of all is the importance of Christians forming strong churches. And what does a strong church even look like? Let me read you starting with Romans chapter 15, starting with verse 14. It says, Now I myself am confident concerning you, my brethren, that you are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, able also to admonish one another. Nevertheless, brethren, I have written more boldly to you on some points as reminding you, because of the grace given to me my God, that I might be a minister of Jesus Christ to the Gentiles, ministering the gospel of God, that the offering of the Gentiles might be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. All right, so what does a strong church look like? First of all, a strong church does not mean, as we've talked about in previous weeks, that every person who attends that church is a mature, godly believer. Because if you are reaching out to your community at all and you're having an impact, you're going to have to think about the fact that there's going to be people coming into that church at all kinds of different levels. Some of them may know Christ as Savior, some may not. And even among the strong and mature believers, we got our defects as well. And they should be rather obvious. I think when Jesus' own disciples are going with Christ to a certain village, and the mission was, and Christ even was telling them this, let's try to avoid being recognized. Evidently, he wanted to spend some time personally with them, maybe allowing them to rest because of the vigors of the ministry, maybe even having some chance to teach them some things that he knew they would need in the future. So you can imagine you got 12 men there with them, and they're very much on mission. Okay, we got to make sure we're not recognized. Well, who shows up but a Canaanite woman? Now, Canaanites are Gentiles, and they are really looked down by the Jews of Jesus' generation. And she starts yelling. And she's yelling, you know, Son of David, have mercy on me. My daughter is possessed with a devil. And so she is blowing their cover completely. Now, the disciples, they want to ignore this woman. They come to Jesus and they say, send her away. You know, get rid of her. She's messing up the mission. She's, she is letting all kinds of people around here know that we're here, that you're here specifically, and we're going to be overrun with people again. And so they have really no concern for this woman. Of course, Jesus is going to help her out, and he's going to deliver her daughter from demonic possession. But I just want you to think about the fact that these are some of the closest followers to Christ, and they didn't have a whole lot of compassion for her. And so you can definitely walk into even good churches. You can, and you can say, 
uh, boy, I, I didn't see anybody really take a personal interest in me. Let me ask you this, though. Are people getting helped? That's the thing that really will identify a good church where the Bible's being preached and people are getting help. Well, if, that, if that's the case, then you're going to find some people in there at all different levels of spirituality. You may find somebody that just has come as curious, and they don't know Christ at all. Maybe you have some that are coming really because some loved one dragged them there, and they have absolutely no interest in listening. And you got somebody else, and maybe they're a new Christian. They got all kinds of bad habits that they still have, and and God's working on them, but they don't know a lot of things that that God still is going to obviously help them with uh, down the road. And you got other people that have been there for years, and quite honestly, their hearts are cold. They, for whatever reason, they've not really followed through on walking with God. So when you walk into a, a given assembly. The indication is not that everybody is super holy and there's halos around their heads, that that makes a good church. But, um, but he does mention four specific things that at least some of the people in there need to have that Paul's pointing out of the church at Rome. And when I talk about the church at Rome, please don't think about St. Peter's Cathedral and beautiful garments and all. That won't happen for centuries. What we're looking at is... The, the major city on the planet at the time, the city of Rome, and you have a number of people that are now coming to Christ as Savior, and they're meeting who knows where. Maybe in a, in a house, it could be in a courtyard somewhere. Don't think big church and all that kind of beauty stuff. It's, it's not happened yet. So he says, I myself am confident concerning you, my brethren, that you are full of goodness. Now, there's the first characteristic, that you got to have some people in there that truly have good character. Now, that word goodness is, the idea of moral excellence is really what it means, virtue. And so I was trying to think, now, what are some characteristics of moral virtue that we could all agree on and say, well, these are things that would be in the, a person who is truly walking with God? Well, I thought about John 1.14, where Jesus is described, and it says this about him, the Word became flesh, and the Word is God the Son. He became flesh, which means he became a man, and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Now, there's two characteristics that I think we could agree on would be full of goodness, full of grace and truth, graciousness. Graciousness is like kindness to people that they did nothing to deserve it. So, when you think about being gracious, it's really God's our ultimate example of this, as he treats with kindness people that have done nothing to deserve it. That's how all of us get saved, because we don't earn our salvation because I've gone to church so many times or I've not done anything real bad. We don't earn our salvation at all. It's something that God gives us when we simply respond to him in repentance and faith. Repentance for my sins, recognize that I'm a sinner, I deserve his wrath. And then putting my faith, not in myself, not in my church, not in any other synagogue, mosque, nothing like that. I'm putting my faith in Jesus Christ and his sacrifice for me. And then God gives me forgiveness of sins. He gives me eternal life. Truth. Think about Jesus being full of grace and truth. So if you came to him, he certainly would be gracious to you if you were sincere with him and you were willing to truly seek him, but he'd also be truthful with you. He wouldn't just butter you up. He wouldn't just say what you want him to say or maybe even expect him to say. He would tell you the truth, even if it hurt. 
And so that's really, I think, two good characteristics that we could agree on when Paul says you're full of goodness. He's talking about some of the major leaders in that Church of Rome at the time. You got some good people in there. They're full of goodness. He mentioned something else, filled with all knowledge. This obviously doesn't mean that you have the entire Bible memorized, but it does involve gaining over time and study a firm grasp on what the scriptures are saying. And just to keep in mind that when Paul's writing this, the New Testament is coming to be, but it's not distributed across the known world yet, and there are some books that haven't even been written yet. And so when he's talking about full of knowledge, the major body of that knowledge is going to be your Old Testament scriptures. People that had studied and were learning, you say, well, boy, I don't even like the Old Testament. Well, let me tell you, you're, you're poorer for it. You really are. You need to read your Old Testament as well as your New Testament, that you might really understand God's revelation. God's not contradicting himself in the New Testament from what he said in the Old Testament. I've been really impressed in this study of the book of Romans this time through, how many times Paul is explaining to us he's really just building on Old Testament theology. He's not coming up with something new. He's really explaining what's been in the Old Testament all along that many people had really not put together. So filled with knowledge. Paul says, able also to admonish one another. Now, this idea of being able to admonish or teach each other presupposes that you've taken the time to study God's Word to the place that you can intelligently teach it, so you can help somebody along the path. Now, I'll also say this. Don't be too intimidated by the fact that, well, I can't share my faith with anybody because I don't know enough. I've only been saved a little while. I find two things are true. Number one, if you've been genuinely born again, you know something. And you can share what you know. Don't fudge it when you don't know something. It's okay to say, well, I really don't know the answer to that. I'll tell you what, I'll try to get the answer. Nothing wrong with saying that either, but follow through. Then get back to them and answer whatever question they have. There's nothing wrong with saying, I don't know that answer, but you do know something. Share what you do know. And the second thing I find very interesting, even as a teenager, was God often put me in situations where I was able to share what I was just learning myself. So he didn't put me in situations that were beyond my ability. I'll give you an example. I remember one night, again, we're trying to reach people, many times people we don't even know. One time I was out of what was called visitation. We were just going out and um, knocking on doors in the neighborhood and just, you know, inviting people to church, seeing if, if God opened up opportunities to witness. And I'm just about 17, maybe. And so we knock on this guy's door and come to find out he's listening to Billy Graham on the television. That was interesting. And so the guy didn't seem that interested when we first knocked on the door, maybe because he was watching the program. But before we were going to leave, he said, well, I do have one question for you. He said, I remember hearing a song, something about I'm looking out of hell and seeing you up in heaven something along that line now, it's been it's been 40 years so don't don't expect me to remember the exact line but what i found interesting i'd just been reading through luke chapter 16 which deals with jesus account of the rich man and lazarus where the rich man is looking from what i would call hades into paradise at that time and so i said well i know it's in the bible i know where it's found and the guy said you do he said, come on in. <laughs> so I had a chance to go in there. And why? I just read through there recently. 
And I found that found that repeatedly, that literally we'd be having discussions, even amongst the teenagers, we'd be talking about some Bible issue, and how many times it was uncanny that I'd been reading something within the last, oh, week or two, and our discussion came up, and I had something to share from the Word of God about that subject. And I'll just tell you, I don't think that's unique to me. I think that God does that repeatedly with people. If you'll just be faithful, Christian, to share what you do know. You don't have to share what you don't. You don't have to make stuff up, but you can share what you do know, and you'll find that God gives you opportunities to do that. So he said, I appreciate this about you Christians in Rome. He said, you have goodness. You're filled with goodness. You also are filled with knowledge. You're able to teach each other. You are still learning and growing yourselves. You're not like thinking, oh, I have arrived. I don't need any more study of the Bible. I don't need to go to church anymore. I have understood all that could be done of the sacred text and just come to me for all the answers. He wasn't expressing that at all. He says, nevertheless, brethren, I have written more boldly to you on some points as reminding you because of the grace given to me by God. He says, Paul says, on some of these things, I want to remind you what's going on. Maybe they need to apply it better. That I might be the minister of Jesus Christ to the Gentiles, ministering the gospel of God, that the offering of the Gentiles might be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. So you'll notice the Holy Spirit's involvement. The idea of sanctified is simply that God is setting aside his people for specific uses, for, for, for good and specific uses. It'd be very similar if any of you have a tux. Now, I, I never bought one. I would always rent one if I needed one for a wedding. But some of you may have thought, and probably you were wise on this, especially if you had a large family, I'm going to have to use one of these things again, and I don't want to have to rent it again. So maybe you went out and bit the bullet and you bought a tux. Well, that's great. Now, you have something that's set aside for a specific use. It's, it's made not for going out and playing football. You bought it to be used for a specific purpose. You bought it to be used when you have a major formal event, a wedding some kind of major thing like that. Well, that's what sanctification is for the Christian. The idea is when God saved you, he's got a specific purpose for your life. And so when you learn to walk with him, what you're doing is you are allowing yourself to be used for that specific purpose. And we don't have to know what it is. We just have to follow God one step at a time. So the first thing in getting the gospel to the world is you have to have strong churches, and by that I mean where you've got some people in there that know the truth, they're gracious people, they love the Lord, they are people who you can go to, you can get help, and they encourage each other, and they're still learning themselves. They're not like thinking that they're the know-all and the end-all of truth. Now, the second thing you need when, to get the gospel across the world is pioneer missionaries. Let me take just a moment and explain what I mean by a pioneer missionary. He's out in an area where the gospel has not reached yet, where people really don't even know who Jesus Christ is, what he's done for them. And so he's trying to take the gospel to an, an unreached area. That's what a pioneer missionary is. And so I, let me read you some verses where Paul is expressing that desire in his own heart. He says, Therefore, I have reason to glory in Christ Jesus for the things which pertain to God, for I will not dare to speak of any of those things which Christ has not accomplished through me in word and deed to make the Gentiles obedient in mighty signs and wonders by the power of the Spirit of God, so that from Jerusalem and roundabout to Illyricum I have fully preached the gospel of Christ. 
And so I have made it my aim to preach the gospel, not where Christ was named, lest I should build on another man's foundation. But as it is written, to whom he was not announced, they shall see. And those who have not heard shall understand. Now back up there in verse 17 where I started, when Paul says, I have reason to glory in Christ Jesus in the things which pertain to God. That word glory is translated in some of the modern translations as boast. The idea of taking pride in something in a good sense. Now, say that you've worked long or hard at doing a job or some project at your house. Maybe it was a stone wall that you constructed or you decorated a room or you did a remodeling job. Is there anything wrong with having a sense of satisfaction in your work? No, there's not. There's nothing wrong with that. Maybe you painted a painting and you wanted to show your work to your friend. Nothing wrong with that. Hopefully, when you do that, you remember that God gave you your talents and abilities, and it would be good to point that fact out as the Lord enables you to do so. But there's nothing wrong with feeling satisfaction or a sense of pride in a job that you've done and you've done well. So you can notice from the first two verses there, verse 17 and 18, that Paul is saying he's excited that God has used him. So he says, I have reason to glory in Christ Jesus for the things which pertain to God. So he's excited. Hey, I have reason to glory. He's giving ultimate credit to Jesus Christ. He says, I was done in Christ. And he's pleased that he could serve God. So he says, I've done these things in things which pertain to God. He says, for I will not dare to speak of those things which Christ has not accomplished through me in word and deed to make the Gentiles obedient. So he does recall with joy the fact that God has used him and God has, has done a great work through his life. So verse 19, he says, In mighty signs and wonders by the power of the Spirit of God, so that from Jerusalem and roundabout to Illyricum, I have fully preached the gospel of Christ. So he's recalling the miracles God had performed through him. That's where he says the mighty signs and wonders. Those would be miracles. And Paul was able to do different things with the power of God upon him. So God definitely used him in mighty ways. He Remember, there's an account of a man that was opposing the gospel, that he struck with blindness for a while, and, uh, and it really awakened a guy to salvation. There was another guy who was lame, that God used him to restore to health. Now, this is not necessary for all the servants of God, and I really don't think that those type of miracles in any sense are typically happening today. But the Apostle Paul was able to do those things. And so he says, I can look back and think of the mighty things that God did through me. Also, the huge territory that God has allowed me to reach for the gospel of Christ. Now, what is this huge swath of territory he's talking about from Jerusalem to Illyricum? Now, where is Illyricum? Well, I had to look that up some time ago, and it's actually way over in Croatia. Now, I, don't, I wish I had a map so I could show you. But I want you to think, um, many of us know in the, that Jerusalem is in the land of Israel, which is along the, uh, the eastern border of the Mediterranean Sea. And so the Apostle Paul went on missionary journeys that would go north of Israel. And actually, he started north of Israel in the first place. But anyway, he, he goes north of Israel, up along the Mediterranean, up into areas of what would be modern-day Turkey, and Illyricum is way over in worse modern-day Croatia. And so Paul is saying, he's saying, I have made it my aim to preach the gospel to people that I haven't heard, 
And he says, I, I've, I've been doing that, but he says, I have fully preached the gospel from Jerusalem all the way up through Illyricum. Now, this is, there's no internet, phones, cars, none of that. How does he say that he has reached such a huge area for Christ? Well, let's talk first about what it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean that every one of those, the people in those regions were saved. Certainly not. There are many people that opposed him through there. So we, we know that that doesn't mean that all those people were born again. It also wouldn't mean that everyone in that huge swath of territory necessarily has heard a clear presentation of the gospel. I mean, even just the fact of how would you know that, but beyond that, you have children that are coming to age where they could understand, and and so there's just no way that you would you'd be able to uh, quantify that, know that, understand that. And I really don't think that's what God told them had happened. So what really has gone on there? Well, there's been enough churches established in that whole region from the eastern Mediterranean around Israel and Jerusalem all the way up through Turkey on in through Greece, and we're talking about up into uh, northern, uh, up into Croatia. There's been enough churches established in that whole region that they could reach the people living there, that if someone really wanted to know about Christ, you could find a church close enough to you where you could get the message. Isn't that something? That's amazing. And this is only maybe about 30 years after Jesus had been crucified. So we're talking about a huge uh, outreach that God has used the Apostle Paul to be involved in. And I'll just say this. I think that the gospel has gone much farther than we have record of, much even today. There are people that are able to hear, whether it be on internet or radio, in even remote parts of the world, the gospel. And we don't even know all the stories, and we won't know until we stand before the Lord, how God put certain people in a, in a right spot so they could hear the word of God. Now, he does tell us that his primary call then was to be, again, a pioneer missionary. That'd be the person who's called to take the gospel of Christ to places where people have never heard of Jesus Christ, his death, his burial, his resurrection, to save them. And this did not mean that Paul was doing nothing else, by the way. He was doing a lot of other things. But this would be the main focus of his ministry, to take the gospel where people had never heard. And so that brings us to the next part about world missions, and that is the importance of ministry to unknown fellow Christians. So, uh, for instance, in our situation, we have an affinity that we've been able to develop over the last, oh, I don't know, maybe 20 years or so, maybe a little longer than that, with the churches in Romania. And it's a specific group. It's not all the churches over there. But there's a Bible school that my dad actually was involved in, oh, that'd be probably 30 to 40 years ago and was involved in it through much of the remainder of his life. And because of connections there, I was also able to, our church was able to support uh, ministry over there in Romania. And so it's been a real blessing now to actually travel over there, to be involved in ministry with the folks over there. And there, some of their folks have come into our church as well. And I remember one particular time, again, this is part of the technology of today, we actually video uh, chatted kind of, on, we had an online where they could see us and we could see them at the, in their congregation. And what a blessing those things are. So Paul's going to talk 
about being involved in ministry with uh, and getting the, the Gentile churches in these regions that he was reaching to try to be a help to brothers and sisters in Christ really across the world that they would never meet this t- side of eternity. And so he writes this, For this reason, because of him trying to go to unreached areas, I have also been much hindered from coming to you. Now that makes sense, because Rome already had the gospel before the Apostle Paul got there, so it's not one of those uh, frontier areas. So Paul didn't really have a major reason to go to Rome up to this point in his life. He says, but now, no longer having a place in these parts and having great desire these many years to come to you, whenever I journey to Spain, I shall come to you, for I hope to see you on my journey and to be helped on my way there by you, if first I may enjoy your company for a while. So it's kind of interesting that Again, Paul's main ministry often kept him from visiting the Roman church. And by the way, this isn't the only spot in his letter to the Romans, because he's not been there yet, where he mentions that. I'm going to back up in chapter 1. Listen to verses 11 to 13. It says, For I long to see you that I may impart to you some spiritual gift so that you may be established. So that's one of the reasons why I wanted to go to Rome, to bless them with a spiritual gift of some type. And I'm not talking about financially. I think it's something that he would be able to share with them that would be meaningful to them as Christians. He goes on, he says, That is, that I may be encouraged together with you by the mutual faith, both of you and me. Now, I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that I often planned to come to you, but was hindered until now, that I might have some fruit among you also, just as among the other Gentiles. So, again, Paul wanted to get to Rome, but it really wasn't lining up yet with his main purpose, which was to reach the unknown. So he's obviously excited by what God was doing in Rome and wanted to both bless the church there and also be encouraged by their mutual faith that he had with them. And so he was planning then to pass through Rome on his way to his next pioneer work, which at this time was going to be Spain. That's where he wanted to go next. If you're just joining us, you're listening to the Beacon of Hope broadcast, a ministry of Calkins Baptist Church. Now, back to the message. And so you see him mentioning that in the verses I read to you. And then he plans um, now to spend some time with them. And But before he can do that, he's got another mission of mercy to perform. And so I want to read you what he's got next on his agenda. He says, but now I'm going to Jerusalem to minister to the saints. For it pleased those from Macedonia and Achaia to make a certain contribution for the poor among the saints who are in Jerusalem. It pleased them indeed, and they are their debtors. For if the Gentiles have been partakers of their spiritual things, their duty is also to minister to them in material things. So let me just stop there and let's talk about what he's what he's really discussing here. His mission of mercy he wants to go on before he goes to Rome is there he wants to take an offering, a financial offering, to some suffering saints in the city of Jerusalem. Rather interesting historical background on that. The gospel started as far as after Christ's crucifixion the, the church started in Jerusalem, the very spot where, again, if Jesus doesn't rise from the dead, was the very spot you could prove that to be all a myth, the resurrection. All you had to do was go to the tomb and show his body. That's all you had to do to stop Christianity in its tracks. But in the city of Jerusalem, where people knew the tomb was empty, that's where the, the church started. 
And so there was a tremendous work going on in the early days after Christ's resurrection in the city of Jerusalem. Now, again, Satan hates God's work going forward. And so he stirred up some of the Jewish leadership against the church. And there was one particular very zealous young man that went after these believers thinking that they are a cult calling themselves Jews when they're saying that Jesus is the Messiah. It's a cult. It's a wicked thing. It needs to be stopped. And that man who went after the church was called Saul of Tarsus. That is Paul's name before his conversion. And so in Acts chapter 8, I just want to read you the first three verses. It's very ironic when you think about it. Acts chapter 8, listen to verses 1 to 3. It says, now Paul was consenting to his death. That is, the man Stephen, who was a godly Christian, one of the early Christians, was put to death by a number of people. Some of them had been involved, in all probability, in Christ's crucifixion. Matter of fact, they were. And so Saul, being a young man and believing that it was right to crucify Christ, he's all about this. He thought that, that putting Stephen to death was the right thing, and they stoned him to death. So he was consenting to his death. He was agreeing with it. Now, at that time, a great persecution arose against the church, which was at Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. So you'll notice that a number of these Christians, because of the tremendous opposition that was coming from the governmental authorities in Jerusalem, they had to leave. They, they had to run for their lives, for um, their protection. It says, verse 3, As for Saul, he made havoc of the church, entering every house and dragging off men and women, committing them to prison. So guess who the chief persecutor of the early church was? Well, it was Saul of Tarsus, who later would be converted and become the Apostle Paul. But what Saul didn't realize, as an unsaved man who just thought this was terrible, the blasphemy that, of calling Jesus Messiah... What he didn't understand is what the next verse says. Therefore, those who were scattered went everywhere preaching the word. That is, that Saul's persecution of the believers in Jerusalem actually helped spread the gospel to other areas. And so, here the church since that time has really been suffering. There's not the numbers that they would have. They had thousands of people that were coming to Christ, and on a regular basis, people were being saved in the city of Jerusalem in those first few weeks after Christ's uh, resurrection. And yet now, because of Saul's uh, opposition and his virulent persecution of those believers, they had to leave. And so now, years later, the, many of the uh, saints in Jerusalem have suffered uh, for many years, and, and they're impoverished. I think there might have been a famine that went on at that same time as well. And so now as a Christian, the Apostle Paul has gone around to Gentile churches that he started since his conversion and said, look, can you help these poor saints? You don't, you don't know these people personally, but can you know them? Can you help them? Because they're really suffering in Jerusalem. And he's pointing out, you got the gospel because of them. That's why... That's why the gospel is going forward. And so believers, now he mentions two areas. He mentions Achaia and Macedonia. Now, for those of you that may not be familiar with the geography over there, those are both regions in Greece. And so Paul, 
is taking money from these churches, and and by the way, you can read about him talking about the offering to the from the the group in Achaia. That would be the uh, the the ones who were uh, and specifically the church in Corinth. Okay, that's in that region. Let me just read you some of what he was writing to those people concerning this offering he wanted to take to Jerusalem. It says now concerning, I mean I mean by the way, Second Corinthians chapter nine, starting with verse one. It says now concerning the ministering to the saints. It is superfluous for me to write to you, for I know your willingness about which I boast of you to the Macedonians, that's the other group, that Achaia was ready a year ago, and your zeal has stirred up the majority. Yet I sent, have sent the brethren, lest our boasting of you should be in vain in this respect, that as I said, you may be ready. So what he's saying is, we talked about giving this offering about a year ago. He'd been busy, I'm sure, doing other things. And now he says, we're going to come back through soon. I just want you to be ready, because I know you talked about having an offering, but you know how it is. Sometimes you're willing to do something, and if it doesn't happen right away, you kind of forget about it. And so his point that he's, one of these things he's writing this letter about, he's saying, look, I just want you to be ready that when we come, you know, you wanted to give, I want to remind you that so you can have your offering. Lest if some of the Macedonians come, with me and find you unprepared, we, not to mention you, should be ashamed of this confident boasting. They said, I'd really feel bad if I get there and, and you didn't have it, you know, you forgot to take up an offering for the saints at Jerusalem. Therefore, I thought it necessary to exhort the brethren to go ahead of time and prepare your generous gift beforehand, which you had previously promised that it may be ready as a matter of generosity and not as a grudging obligation. So I didn't want them, you know, fishing through their pockets at the last second. He said, you know, I want you to have some time ahead of time to prepare this offering so that we can take that to the saints at Jerusalem. And so that's what's what's going on here. Paul's saying, I, I'm getting ready to do that mission of mercy first, and then I'm going to come and I'm going to turn around and, and hopefully come to Rome on my way to Spain. And now he says this was not only a voluntary offering, but it was an appropriate offering. This is something, you know, we got the gospel because of the Church of Jerusalem. Those saints are suffering. Uh, we should help them. And isn't it interesting what God can do? That here's the guy that really started the whole problem in the, with the Christians of Jerusalem, with his awful persecution of them. And now years later, after coming to Christ himself, he's turning around and, you know what, I need to help these people. I need to be a blessing to them. Now, he wants then to come at God's perfect time to Rome, not at his own manipulation. It's not like he's trying, he's, you know, he's got certain responsibilities he's trying to get done. So verse 28, he says, Therefore, when I have performed this and have sealed to them this fruit, and the fruit is the, it's really the result of Christ working in these people's hearts, that they're going to care about people on the other side, you know, uh, miles from them, that they'll never meet. So this showing the love of Christ in their hearts. When I have sealed to them this fruit, I shall go by way of you to Spain. But I know that when I come to you, I shall come in the fullness of the blessing of the gospel of Christ. And so what he's saying is, I'm not going to try to manipulate the time to come. I want to get there when God wants me there. And it's kind of funny because as it turned out, it really didn't happen the way Paul expected it to happen. And I'll talk to you about that in just, well, let me just mention it to you right now. What did happen? How does Paul finally get to Rome? And by the way, he does get there. And um, he was able to meet many of the Christians there. And actually, was um, it happened differently than he expected. You'd find the story in Acts chapter 21, verses 17 to 36, and even beyond that. 
And let me just summarize it for you. Paul was still very controversial among the Jewish Christians, and we'll read some verses to show you that in just a second out of Romans 15. And why? Because a lot of these guys would remember when, as a younger man, he had people put to death in the church. So if you had a loved one, maybe it was your dad or your aunt or or your brother that was put to death by that Saul of Tarsus, and then all of a sudden you hear that he's become a Christian, would you struggle with that one? You know, boy, wouldn't that be hard to forgive that guy? Or there are also people that are saying, well, he's telling us to, uh, to, to drop all our traditions because he certainly was saying that you didn't have to be circumcised in order to be saved. He was saying that we're not under the law, which is all true. But um, he wasn't saying that you couldn't obey the law as far as, you know, observing different things, especially the Jewish community. I think that would make sense. But, but it's not a way to heaven. It's not what everybody has to do in order to be saved. That salvation comes through faith in Christ, just repentance and faith alone. So when Paul's preaching that gospel, a lot of people suspected uh, he's just trying to get inside the church so he can, he can mess it up, so he can uh, uh, turn us away from the truth. So there was a suspicion of Paul, not only because he was a persecutor, but because he was teaching things that a lot in the Jewish community didn't like. And so one, one day, he came back, when he came to Jerusalem with this offering, there was some talk, and, and they, they actually said to this, they said, you know, people are talking that you want, you are telling the Jewish people to forsake the laws, which he wasn't doing. And so um, why don't you go and actually, there's some guys that are going to be in the temple. They need to, um, they, they, they had some kind of a ritual they were going through. He said, why don't you sponsor them? You could do that and be involved yourself. And then the Jewish Christians are going to realize you're not just for destroying the law. And so Paul did that. He willingly did that. Well, while he's in the temple there, he was recognized by some of the Jewish people who had seen him elsewhere. And they'd also seen him in the city of Jerusalem earlier, um, a few days earlier, and he was walking with a Gentile Christian. And they assumed, now this was not true, but they assumed that he had brought that Gentile Christian into one of the forbidden areas of the temple that was only for Jews. And so a riot ensues as they accuse him of trying to destroy Judaism and of even trying to defile the temple. Now, at this riot, they were going to kill him. And the Romans, who are all around there, they're, they're occupying Jerusalem under, for the Roman Empire. Of course, they don't want to see riots, and so they step into the situation, and they, they rescue Paul. And, and Paul says, can I speak to the crowd? Because that was on his heart. He loves his fellow citizens. He wanted to reach them for Christ. And so the guy gave him permission, and the crowd actually quieted down, especially when he started speaking in Hebrew. And um, he started preaching to them about Christ. And, and they listened to him very well until he brought up that God had sent him to reach the Gentiles. And at that, that was a, a bridge too far, and the riot ensued again. Now, eventually, uh, the, many, several of the Jewish authorities, again, these are people that would be similar to the ones, and probably some of them were still around, that had persecuted uh, Christ when he was on earth, and and so they, they went to the Roman authorities trying to get Paul uh, executed, if possible, or at least sent away for good. And, and so 
the result, the long result of this was Paul not getting a fair trial where he was at, appealed to Caesar directly as a Roman citizen, which Paul was. He's Jewish and a Roman citizen at the same time. He appeals to Caesar. And what that meant was that Paul makes it to Rome about two or three years, probably after he thought he'd get there, not freely, you know, coming in on a ship as a free citizen of Rome and and an apostle of God. He's coming there as a prisoner. But that's how he gets to Rome. And uh, and but God's going to use him there. And the and one of the first things he does, he gathers the Je- Jewish community together. He encourages them to come out and, and, and see him. And he told them about Christ. And they gave him about a whole day to teach about Christ and um, and listen to him very well and had great discussions among themselves. And I'm sure some were converted and others were not. So why do Christians tell others about their faith? Well, it's because we really do believe that Jesus Christ is the only Savior, that there are two destinations for man after this life, heaven or hell, and that Christ is the only way to heaven. And so we're telling people, everyone that we can, who will listen about Christ as God gives us that uh, the courage and the, and the wisdom to do so. And so when we're talking about trying to reach the world for Christ that they may know, the keys so far we've seen are Having strong local churches, churches where people get helped, churches where there are some spiritually mature people, doesn't mean everybody's mature, but where there's some people that can really set an example and be a blessing to others. And then the third thing was the importance of ministry to unknown fellow Christians across the world. And so when others, brothers or sisters are suffering or in need, we try to step up and be a blessing to them as well, obviously, as those that don't even know Christ in our community. Then there's a fourth key to worldwide uh, missions, and that is the importance of a fervent, specific uh, prayer life of God's people. And so I'm going to read the last three ver- four verses of the chapter. Paul goes on, he says, Now I beg you, brethren, through the Lord Jesus Christ and through the love of the Spirit, that you sp- strive together with me in prayers to God for me, that I may be delivered from those in Judea who do not believe, and that my service for Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints that I may come to you with joy by the will of God and may be refreshed together with you. Now the God of peace be with you all. Amen. So you'll notice Paul has several specific requests he's asking them to pray. I don't know how many of you pray more, wrote prayers, you know, maybe memorized prayers, something along that line. Can I just encourage you to really begin to talk to God? Imagine being in God's place and you hear the same basic rhyme or the same words all the time from somebody, doesn't that sound like it's a little bit cold? And so I really believe that Christians ought to be talking to God. If you look at the Psalms, they talked very well, but they talked to God. If you look at people when they're praying in the Bible, it's the same thing. It's not so much a rote thing as it is a heart thing. And so, well, if we're going to talk to God, sometimes it's helpful to have some specific requests to pray for about people. And so Paul begins to share some very specific things he'd like the brethren in Rome, even though they don't know him yet personally, uh, many of them don't, uh, he'd like them to pray about some specific. Now, the source of their prayers, he mentions, I beg you, brethren, through the Lord Jesus Christ and through the love of the Spirit. So the source is Christ and the love given by the Holy Spirit uh, of Christian for a fellow Christian. And so he's asking, okay, you know Christ, you have the love of the Spirit, I'm asking for your prayers. They also 
talks about the fervency of their prayers. He says that you strive together. Now, that carries the idea of exerting great effort or even uh, fighting alongside someone. So I'll give you a couple ways you can think about striving in prayer. One is, let's say you come across someone whose cows are out. And up in our area, sometimes that's the case. Now, the guy's out there, so it's not like I've, I've been by and, and have told people, and sometimes it really doesn't make much difference to them. They've had them out before, or they're not all that concerned. But there's other times when people are actively trying to get their animals back in the fence. And we had horses growing up. Believe me, we went through that a number of times as well. So you come across the guy, and he's trying to get his cows back in. And in, in striving together, the idea would be like you not only parking your car in a good spot, maybe to help hem the cows in and shoo them back toward the gate, but you actually get out there and you start running around and helping the guy. And maybe you have to go through some mud, you got your good shoes on, maybe your good pants get dirty, but the idea is you're not uh, too big and too busy to actually really get out and truly help the guy to get his cows back in. That's the idea of striving together. Or let's say in a military context, you're part of a unit and a call comes in that there's a different unit, not not yours, and they're pinned down by a large enemy force. And so you drop everything and not only go uh, to you know help with wounded, but you're going there to fight for them, even at the risk of your own life. That's the idea when Paul's saying, strive together with me. So the obvious point is that he's asking these people to sincerely and fervently pray for him. So what does he want them to pray for him about? Well, he mentions several things. The first thing, that he would be delivered from unbelievers in Judea. Now that's the providence. Think of like Jerusalem as, as the city and the general, like the county that Jerusalem is in, the province that Jerusalem is in, is Judea. And so there are a lot of, of people who are very much against the Christian faith in that region, thought it was a blasphemous cult. Paul had been there at, before his conversion himself. And so he is asking that the Roman Christians, please pray that I'll be delivered from those people that are unbelievers in Judea. Then he also is asking, strive together with me that I may be delivered from those in Judea who do not believe that my service for Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints. He's praying that his gift that he's bringing that it would be received. you, you got to remember, again, that Paul, in his earlier days, had persecuted the saints in Jerusalem. And some of them were still slow to believe that he was truly converted and working for Christ. And so they, he's asking, pray, pray that the church will receive the gift that we're bringing. The third thing he's asking for is that I may come to you with joy by the will of God. And so he's asking that he would be able to come to the Roman believers in, in God's timing and in joy. And this request, as I mentioned just a few moments ago, would be answered in a different way than Paul was thinking. He'd actually become to Rome as a prisoner. And then the final request he's asking is that Paul would be able to enjoy fellowship with the Christians at Rome. And, and so that would happen as well. Now, he also mentions that he's praying for them. He ends his, his, his uh, words to them at this point in chapter 15 by saying, Now the God of peace be with you all. Amen. So he's praying that God and his peace would be with, with these believers. Now, what do we conclude from this? First of all, everyone who is truly saved has a role to play to reach the world for Christ. You don't have to necessarily go across the ocean, but God has given each of us a role to play. So you may be involved in serving in your local church, or you may be involved 
as a pioneer missionary going somewhere where the gospel has never gone. Maybe it's just across the lawn to your neighbor. Maybe it's going to see someone in the hospital or in the nursing home who is suffering. But everyone who is truly saved has a role to play. We also know that everyone who is truly saved does not have the same role, not the exact same role. You may be a new believer, so you may be on a different spiritual level than somebody else. Now, again, God can use you, but you may be a slow grower. You may be a, a needed as a mature leader in the church, but everybody doesn't have the same role. You're not supposed to. Everyone does not have the same job, obviously. And so there are some who are called to be leaders in the church, God mentions apostles and prophets and pastors and teachers who are supposed to build up the saints, according to Ephesians 4 and verses 11 to 16. They're supposed to build up the saints so that the, the individual Christian can work the ministry. In 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 10 and 11, Peter divides the spiritual gifts into two major categories, the speaking gifts and the service gifts. And let me tell you this, if you can use your hands and help people, whether it be fix their car or, or be able to repair something. If, you, if you've been given the ability to use your hands, you can do great service in the work of God. The fact that a church has lights that work, the heat system works, that the carpets are well laid or whatever, those type of things happen because somebody knows what they're doing, and God often gives the church people with gifts in those physical hands-on areas. So everyone doesn't have the same job, but all of us are called to be a witness. All of us are called to speak up for our Savior. We're all called to pray. Uh, some are called to lead. Some are called to go to remote regions. Some are called to teach believers. But whatever God gives you to do, you are absolutely right to take satisfaction in your job and feel free to take great great a joy and and a pride in doing a good work for the Lord, not to pat yourself on the back, but to rejoice that God has given you the privilege of serving him. You know, because God calls each of his true children to be involved in reaching others for Christ. So my friend, if you are one of those that have had Christians bugging you over the years and you've been wondering why that happens, let me just encourage you, it's because we know that Christ is the Savior, that Hell is the consequence for our sins, that Jesus is, is able to forgive you and save you, and we want you in heaven with us. And I pray that if you haven't given your heart to Christ yet, that you would do so even today. May the Lord bless you. If you would like some spiritual help, like counseling or prayer, feel free to contact us through our website. If you'd like to listen to this message again or send it to a friend, the link to our podcast is at radiobold.com slash Baptist. As we leave you today, we pray that this broadcast has been a beacon of hope in your life to point you to the light of the world, Jesus Christ. May God's richest blessings come upon you. Thanks for listening. And everlasting life and light, he frees.